Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. And this week's show is the best of the Ask Peggy questions. So you're going to listen to questions that people have asked me. I provide answers. Remember, they're educational, so you need to ask your certified financial planner practitioner if they would work for you. And you can submit questions to my Facebook page, Ask Peggy. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment. So my first question today is, Peggy, what's a mutual fund? So a mutual fund is an investment vehicle that invests in many other securities so that when you buy a mutual fund, you are actually buying a portfolio of investments. Now, if you were to go out and say buy Apple stock or any other stock, that is not an Apple endorsement, you would actually be going in and buying a share of that stock. But when you buy a mutual fund, you are buying a share of the portfolio that the mutual fund has purchased. So you're actually buying into the company and the portfolio that they've put together. Now, those portfolios can be indexes, so they can be very passively managed and only change when the actual underlying index changes, or they can be actively managed with a fund manager who tries to go in and select securities that that person believes will outperform whatever sector your fund is supposed to track. So the advantage of the mutual fund for the average investor is diversity. Most of us don't have the money to be able to buy a stock portfolio made up of single stocks that covers enough so that we're diversified in case something goes wrong. This is particularly true on the bond side of your portfolio because each individual bond costs $1,000. And you wouldn't typically buy one bond of a type because it would be cost prohibitive and really difficult to make the trade. So a diversified bond portfolio is unbelievably expensive. And a diversified stock portfolio is outside of the range of most people. So it's very useful to have that. It's also easy to access it. You just log in or you get your statement. If you're buying a mutual fund online, you can usually do the trading. The thing about a mutual fund is it will have a fee associated with it, which is only fair because whoever has put the fund together has to get paid for putting the fund together. The trick is knowing how much money that is and deciding if the, pu- the fund performance makes the fee worthwhile. So if you're getting great returns and the fee is a little higher, it is at the end of the day up to you to decide whether or not that makes sense. You would want to compare your fund against the index. You would want to see how the index had performed during the same period of time because a rising tide raises all boats. You would also want to look to see whether or not 
the fund was tracking the correct index. So, for example, a small cap fund would want to track its performance against a small cap index, not a large cap index. And a bond fund would never track its performance against a stock index. You would have to find a bond index to be sure that you're either not thinking you've drastically underperformed or possibly outperformed. But what you actually did was outperform a different section of the market than what you were invested in. The disadvantage can be making sure that the fund does what it's supposed to do. So look for something called style drift. Make sure that the fund is continuing to invest in the way you think it is. Also look to see how much money the fund manager is holding in cash. Now in bad market times, it might not be a bad idea to have some cash in a mutual fund, but you want to be careful that the amount of cash that you're holding is not then conflicting if you have opted to hold cash or money market as another part of your asset allocation. Sometimes, especially when the market gets a little strange and the fund managers have gone partially to cash and you're partially in cash, you may be holding more cash than you think you are. However, for most people, mutual funds are a great way to get diversity. You can get large cap, mid cap, small cap. You can get international funds that track developed markets and emerging markets. You can get sector funds. You have a lot of options that you can use to get the diversification into your portfolio to make sure that if one part of the market goes down, you have holdings with different risk reward characteristics that might not be as badly implicated by it. So be very careful that you hold what you think you're holding. Know what you're paying. Make sure that the benchmark is accurate to what you have, and it will do a great job helping you hold a diversified portfolio. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy section. My name is Peggy Doviak, and in this section of the show, I'm going to answer some financial questions that people have contacted me with. Remember that all of my answers are educational They're not investment advice. Even the person that I'm answering the question for needs to talk to their financial professional because I can't get enough details. There could be a reason that you would want to look at something other than what I recommend, but sometimes I can at least point you in a direction that would give you something to think about. So Cynthia asked me, Peggy, we created a cash flow plan for retirement, but we spent a little more than we anticipated the first couple of years. How can we be sure that we're still on track? And Cynthia, I promise you this is not the first time I've heard this. People think they know what they're going to spend in retirement, and then they retire, and it's so much fun that they have a great time the first couple of years, and sometimes they spend a little too much money. So the good news is you're aware that it's happening. The bigger crisis would be if you were spending and you weren't talking to your financial planner and you didn't know it, and then suddenly you're 15 years into overspending and there's not enough money and you have to figure out what to do then. By catching it early, it's fairly easy to adjust. 
So the first thing that you'd want to do is a cash flow analysis like the one you completed when you tried to figure out how much money you needed to save for retirement. And it would be done much the same way, where you'd take the value of all of the accounts that remain, the money that you haven't spent, you'd look at all of your monthly income that comes in, you'd look at the difference. So, you know, maybe you spend $5,000 a month and you have $4,000 a month of income coming in. That means you're spending $1,000 a month out of your savings. And you can do a discounted cash flow on a financial calculator to see how much you would need to have to lump sum fund that need, and then you compare it to your account balance. It's not nearly as complicated to do as that just sounded, but it is really important to have a financial calculator or to use a financial calculator that you find online and make sure that you understand all of the inputs, make sure that the rate of return in the calculator that you're using matches the rate of return the way your portfolio is invested, make sure that inflation has been included, so you don't get some weird surprise where you think that um, you're all right, but it ends up that the calculator was assuming an 11% return, and you were a little bit more conservative and a little more sensible, and you were making 7 or 8 but then suddenly the numbers didn't work. So you really have to look at those online calculators to make sure that you can read under the hood. Or find a financial planner who has a real HP 10B2 financial calculator or another brand, and those numbers can be put in. So if you're a little short, then maybe what you can do is curtail your spending. You know, you can run this analysis and say, well, okay, if I spent a couple thousand dollars a month less for a couple of years, would I get back on track? And so you can try to do it that way. If it still isn't working, then you might want to consider while you're still young and you can do it, maybe a part-time job and something you always thought sounded like fun but would make a little bit of money. The important thing is to be aware of how you are and where you are because you don't want to make this discovery when you're in your 80s and there isn't anything you can do about it because you really can't go back to work then and you don't have enough money and then you've got a real financial crisis. So catch it early make small course corrections, rerun that analysis every two to three years just to make sure you're still where you think you need to be, and it should be able to work itself out. And if it isn't all right, then you and your financial planner can work out a solution. The second question comes from Anne. And Anne wrote and said, my friends tell me that their financial advisor works for free while mine sends me an invoice. I know that they're wrong, but I don't know how to explain it. And I've seen this happen too, Anne. And what happens is the person who thinks that their financial advisor is working for free is not aware of the commission that the advisor got paid for selling the product, or they're not aware of month or annual fees that are inside the funds. Some of that money can go to pay the advisor. Now, in a perfect world, everyone would send their clients an invoice so they'd understand what they were being paid, whether it was a commission or a fee. Unfortunately, only fee-only advisors, I think, are required by law to send the invoice. Certainly, it's best practice. So that, that fee is there. It's generally a percentage of assets under management, or it might be a flat fee. You know, that's something you've already worked out with your advisor. You know what you're paying them to do. The problem with the commission is it buries into the product. It's very hard to see. 
they're still being paid. No one works for free. But some things are a little bit more transparent. When things are transparent, they're easy to understand. But when things are transparent, they're also really obvious. So no, your friends' financial advisors are not working for free. If they're getting not paid from your from your friends, they're getting paid by the company who creates the products. There's a lot of working around to make sure that the fees aren't super obvious in financial services. So you really have to do your homework. You really have to be careful that you understand what you're paying, how you're paying for it. Look at the mutual funds, figure out what the commission structure is on them. You can find that in a lot of sites I like Morningstar. That's not an endorsement, but they have a great free site where you can go in and look to see how much commission is on the fund and whether the advisor gets it at the beginning or the middle or the end. That's Morningstar, M-O-R-N-I-N-G-S-T-A-R.com. It's a good free resource. There's lots of free resources, but you really need to dig around to figure out what you're actually paying. Like I said, because no one is working for anyone for free. That's the end of the show. Remember to be very careful what you click on on any social media sites, and those little quizzes aren't necessarily your friends. Remember that if you were looking to borrow money, interest rates are going up, not down. So if you're considering buy a house or a car or anything that has a long-term payment schedule, you might want to go ahead and make that decision sooner, not later, because I think interest rates are going to do nothing but continue to go up. Remember to ask your financial professional if he or she is willing to be a fiduciary and if they're willing to put it in writing, whether the Department of Labor makes them do it or not. You've got to have a plan to take care of your long-term care expenses. So start thinking about that. It will take a while to come up with a solution to that problem, but if you start now before you really have the crisis, it's going to be a lot easier. Nobody works for free, and keep an eye on your cash flow. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy Doviak About Your Finances show. And in this part of the show, people ask me questions. They can send them into my Facebook page, which is called Ask Peggy, or sometimes people ask me questions individually. So the first question that I want to answer today comes from Joshua, who says, I need some money from my IRA, and my advisor told me that I could take distributions from it without having to pay the 10% penalty, and I don't really understand it. Can you help? Well, Joshua, I can help. And let me start out by explaining to you what your advisor is recommending. It is possible to take a distribution from an IRA or some other kinds of retirement accounts that are called substantially equal periodic payments. You may hear this referred to as SEPP, or sometimes it's called by its tax code section of 72T. Now, what this lets you do is determine a distribution schedule on your IRA 
and take substantially equal periodic payments from that IRA, but there's a lot of fine print in this. If you follow all the rules, you do, in fact, get to avoid the 10% penalty. Now, remember, any time you're taking money out of an IRA, you don't get to avoid the income taxes. So you'll still pay income tax on the distribution, but you can dodge the 10% penalty. Probably the most onerous part of this is you must take these distributions for a minimum of five years or until you're 59 and a half, whichever is later. So if you were 50 years old and you were considering taking substantially equal periodic payments, you'd have to take them for nine and a half years until you're 59 and a half. If you're 58, you would have to take them until you're 63 because the five-year rule would apply there. You'd be 59 and a half in a year and a half, but it's whichever is longer. So the first thing this puts you into the situation of is having to take a lot of money out of your retirement accounts. And remember, your retirement accounts are called retirement for a reason. These are the funds that you need to have saved so that you're all right financially when you're in retirement. If you've taken major distributions from them when you're younger, you're much less likely to have the resources that you need when you are retirement age. Now, I don't know Josh's financial situation, and so it's possible that there's adequate resources, that all of the proper planning has been done, and everything's okay for him to go ahead and do this. But I do know that too many times, in my opinion, it's seen as a way to get a client access to money without paying the penalty, without really thinking through what's going on. Now, you don't get to randomly decide how much money you're going to take. The IRS gives you three choices. One is a fixed annuitization. The second is fixed amortization. And the third uses the required minimum distribution calculation. Now, when I talk about fixed annuitization, I am not saying that we're annuitizing this, like you're going out and buying an annuity. The legal word for stream of income is annuity. So sometimes you'll hear financial advisors use the word, or the IRS or any sort of like a regulating body uses the term annuity or annuitization. They aren't talking about going and buying something. They're talking about creating a stream of income. And on an annuitization, it's based off of your life expectancy, much like another kind of annuity would work, and that's the amount you have to take out every single month. If you use the fixed amortization schedule, that's calculated more like amortizing a mortgage, but it's also based on your life expectancy. The annuitization and the amortization will give you different amounts of money, but once it's set, that's how much money you have to take out of your account every single month. The required minimum distribution method 
uses your account balance from the year before to determine how much money you have to take the next year. So if the account has gone up in value, you'd have to take more. If the account has gone down in value, you can take less. So the RMD method will not lead to absolutely identical payments like the annuitization and the amortization does. You are allowed one time, if you've chosen annuitization or amortization, you can change. You can change to the RMD method. And let me tell you a story to tell you why. Because back in the dot-com age, when stocks were just soaring and suddenly multimillionaires were made from startups that suddenly went public and they had all of this money on paper, a lot of people in their 30s thought this would be a really great thing. Let's access our IRA now. It has so much money in it, we couldn't possibly need it all. And then the crash happened. And remember, you've made a guarantee that you're going to take out that much money every month. And in some really awful cases, there wasn't the money to take. So when you use the RMD method, you use the account balance from the year before. That lets you downward adjust just in case you've had a disaster, just in case you do not have enough money to be able to take the entire distribution that you thought you were going to be able to use. So the biggest issues with this are the requirement of taking the money. You also can't take out more money. Once you set this up, it's all the money you get. I know someone one time who wanted to take more money out in a month. They had a really pressing need. They weren't able to do it. So you close off all of your options when you do a substantially equal periodic payment. And you're stuck with this until you're 59 and a half or it's been five years. If you have another source of funds, you're probably better off using it. Although there's cases where this is a good idea. You want to talk to your financial planner and really look at your options Really be sure that this is what you're doing. My biggest fear is that by taking these payments out when you're younger, you don't have enough money saved for when you're older. Because usually the reason you need the money is because you don't have enough money now. That happens. It happens for a lot of weird reasons. It's not a bad thing. But it might be an indication that retirement's going to be really tough. So be very cautious before you take a bet that you don't really know what you've done. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. The next question comes from Crystal. And Crystal says, I just started working and my employer told me that I don't actually need to enroll in the retirement plan because the firm uses a negative election and I don't know what that means. So sometimes companies really want their employees to participate in the retirement plan. A negative election means that you are enrolled in the plan unless you choose not to be. And then they'll typically set a dollar amount, like 3% of your salary, 
and they will take that out of your salary as a contribution each month, and there's a default investment. So it's actually theoretically possible to not even know you're in a retirement plan until you get a statement. Negative election is a good way of getting people to save for retirement. It's also a good way for companies to make sure they have enough employee participation. It is important to know what's going on with your money. So you ought to see whether or not you're in the plan. You need to understand what that default investment is. Look at it specifically. Look at its risk tolerance level. Look at its assumptions. Make sure that default investment is actually where you want your money to be. The default investment used to be money market, but they discovered that a lot of people don't go in and make portfolio changes. So now it's more likely to be a balanced fund or a target date fund that becomes more conservative the closer you get to your target retirement date. But I really wish you would understand it. Don't just let them take care of it for you. Look at what you own. Make sure it ties to what you need. If you don't have a negative election, then make sure that you've enrolled in your plan, especially if it has a match. Because if your retirement plan has a free match and there's any way at all that you can contribute enough money to the plan to get the full match, then that's free money. And the free money is a really good way to help you save your retirement because we're in retirement now almost as long as we're in our working careers where we're saving for retirement. And that 50-50 split is really scary. So it's important that you have enough money saved so that when you retire, your retirement is easy. And my question today comes from Angela, who says, I'm just about to graduate from college and I have a job. What are the first steps that I should take? And I want to begin by congratulating Angela and All of the other graduates who are going to walk the stage this month, you should be so proud of yourselves. It is so hard to get a college degree. You have taken hours and hours of time, spent lots of money, and you should be so proud of yourself. And I am proud of you for completing this task. So let's start out with by saying hooray for you. So now that you're on the other side of college, if you had student loan debt and you're not going on to graduate school, so you don't have a way to defer it, I want you to begin to pay your student loan debt back as quickly as you're required to do it. Student loan debt can be really painful debt to deal with. And the biggest problem comes from people who decide that they just aren't going to start making payments yet. Well, you have 270 days to make a payment. And if you don't make a payment from the time it's due for 270 days, then your account goes into default. And then at that point, the government can garnish your wages, They can even take your social security check once you're in retirement 500 years from now. You also can have your tax refund garnished. So not paying your student loan debt back is not an option. Work out the payment plan. Keep the payments where you can afford it. Remember that the interest on the student loan debt is at least deductible. Now, if you don't have a lot of other debt to pay off, paying extra on your student loans is great because unless 
your tax bracket is 100%, which it never is, deductible debt is not great debt. So you're always better not paying the interest, not having to pay back the student loan, than you are saving that debt because the interest is deductible. So if you can pay some extra on it, that's fine. You don't have to. Create a budget you can live on, include that student loan debt as part of it. Well, I can't believe how fast the show went today. If you have a question, go to my Ask Peggy Facebook page. Also, you can check out my newly redesigned website, which is PeggyDoviak.com. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.